Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, my name is Joe Armstrong, and thank you so very much for listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, the L.A. Choral Lab. In 2014, composer and pianist Michael Alfaro was struggling with life choices and had an epiphany while hiking with a friend. He'd been looking for a new path in his life, and his friend asked him some version of that telling question, what would you do with your life if money wasn't an issue? In answering, Alfaro's truth tumbled out. He would start a choir. Inspired by the clarity of pursuing a crazy idea, he dug out some numbers of the many professional singers he knew around Los Angeles. Would you be interested in being part of a new choral ensemble was his elevator pitch, and nearly every person he contacted said that they'd love to sing in Alfaro's group. Over and over, he heard singers say that although they had many opportunities to sing, they missed the kind of challenging, mostly a cappella choral music they'd sung in college, and that they just didn't have a place to do it. Clearly, the interest was there on the part of the performers, but would there be an audience for a new choral ensemble in Los Angeles? Just two years later, the group, given the ambitious name the L.A. Choral Lab, does several concerts a year and is going strong. As conductor and musical director, Alfera curates the repertoire to suit the 22 mixed voices that comprise its members and selects pieces that represent the many variations of choral music from different eras in history. But it's L.A. Choral Lab's stated mission to break with the staid, familiar tradition of choral music and focus on works from new composers and inventive, unconventional performance spaces to give unique, transformative performances that make the group exceptional. The L.A. Choral Lab is ensuring that choral music has relevance in the new millennium. Welcome to Independence Day, Michael Alfera of the L.A. Choral Lab. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm great, man. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. This is such a unique opportunity for the show, for the listeners, for me to have you on the show because it's, aside from being just different than our normal thing that we do, I have a long history in choral music, which is something that like my L.A. music friends don't really even know about. Because I feel like for me, it was something I did in the high school, like grade school, high school, college a lot. I mean, touring internationally with choirs. And the, the, it's a little known fact about me. I've said this for years. If I could do anything in the world, if I could be a professional choral singer, that's what I would do. The problem is that job doesn't really exist. It kind of does kind nowadays. Of does, I mean, a little if, bit. if you had if we had had this conversation ten years ago, absolutely right. not. But I mean, I know people who are putting together a life by singing in the yeah. LA Master Chorale and having their church job and singing right. at a temple for High Holy Days and teaching a few voice lessons. Well, here but see, that's there. what I'm getting at. Like, you yeah, can you can be a professional right. musician, you can be a professional singer, most certainly, but you still have to diversify and do teach lessons. Maybe, like you said, sing with the this choir and that choir and do some voiceover work and this and that and that's not it's a good way to make a living it's certainly better than digging holes and drilling holes in sheet metal <laughs> um but like that it's it, it like go from here like tell me how this is possible now and then we'll talk a little bit about your ensemble la choral lab why we're here today you know i was uh my one of my old choir directors is william denning who uh, and dr denning he taught at usc for 15 years and uh, he used to, he started a group in the 80s called the California Choral Club. And at the time, it was the only uh, professional, only like full-on professional chamber choral ensemble anywhere in California. And that was just where the scene was back then. And that was true throughout the 90s, too. And now, in the starting around the beginning of the 2000s, many more choral organizations have sprouted up in the big cities, in, in New York yeah. and in L.A. 
And that's just more opportunities for choral singers, you know, because there was interest. And that's what I've noticed, just like you said about how you sang in middle school or high school or college right. choir. And some people have sung in their church choirs. Um, I heard the statistic once that choral music is the most practiced art form in the United really? States by numbers of people. Okay. And think about it. That makes sense. Yeah, right? yeah. When you add up all those community choirs and all those different people singing, what do you have, you know? But a lot of my friends were we're having this feeling because we all graduated college and we were, you know, out trying to make our careers. And we all said, we miss singing classical choir. Yeah. Yeah. We had that in college and that doesn't, there's no really none of that. There's no equivalent of that in, yeah. in the big world. And that's kind of what I set out to create. That was my, you know, conception when starting the group. Like, let's make a place where we can keep singing all this great choral music. Yeah, we were talking about setting up about podcasting being uh, in that Wild West phase, whereas when anything is in its growth phase, be that the internet or international travel or space travel, when it's which I guess is still in its growth phase, all things <laughs> considered, but when anything is in its growth phase, it's when it's most interesting. It's when people are inventing the mores and the rules by which everyone else will follow, like the Beatles, for example, when they were inventing what that was. It didn't exist. We always think about in the world now, especially with the internet, things always having been the way they are right now, but they weren't always that way. Someone had to invent all that stuff and build the infrastructure. Um, so in thinking about, you know, my choral experience, you know, I loved it more than just about anything. I went to choir, it was the only class I went to every single day. We had it Monday through Friday, at like noon and then 1230. And it was like the highlight of my day every single day. I did, you know, a major 160 some credits in whatever, you know, degree, which went into being music business. Yeah. And but the choir, yeah, you know, and well, I didn't. And why do you think that was? <laughs> well, I think it's the shared human experience. Yeah, I think yeah. it's part of the fact, and I think this ties into what you said about being the most. What do you say? The most popular, most practiced most by practiced. number of people. Yeah, popular is such a such a teenage girl word. <laughs> but uh, it's the only instrument that every human being carries around exactly. with them, with few exceptions. Some people, you know, actually physically can't sing, but that's more of a an actual problem or a deformity. I think. Most but, people can sing. And, yeah. <laughs> and people who, and there are seeing people who may sing poorly, but everyone has a voice yes. with very few exceptions. Yes, yes, yes. So it's, it's why people focus on the singer in a band for the same reason. It's the only thing that everyone can relate to. Not everyone plays guitar or bass or drums or keyboard or accordion or what have you. Well, it's also right? so much more vulnerable and scary, right? Yeah. Because your instrument is you and right. is inside you and is part of you. Right. And suddenly you're putting that out there. If you're playing a big guitar riff and you, you know, flub the riff, you can say, oh, I tripped over my finger or the brick right. or something. You know, you can put it my outside of you. My amplifier broke or my yeah. whatever. But I think that's the excitement for the audience member, too, because you're watching somebody put themselves out on the line right there yeah. and put their voice out like that. Yeah. And, and specifically, expanding from just singing, choral music specifically... I mean, there are very few things that move me as much as hearing a cappella voices. And it, you know, it starts to happen for me when it gets up above about 20, 16, 20, 25 voices. Yeah. And it actually kind of lose it when it gets past, I don't know, 60. There is such a thing as too much. There's yeah. a sweet spot in there yeah. where when you get that number of voices and it's, you know, it can be mixed gender, it can be all male, female, whatever. But it's best for me when it's all you know, both uh, all soprano, alto, tenor, bass, mixed sure. parts, eight part, ten part, whatever, twelve mm -hmm. part, harmony. Uh, th there's something very, very magical that happens, and that's must be why you are doing what you're doing. Uh, you know, the I say that the pinnacle of my choral singing experience as a singer thus far is when I used to sing with the Westminster Barbershop Chorus. They sing down in Orange County, uh, and we did a competition set in Philadelphia. And we sang the song, um, It Only Takes a Moment, from uh, 
from the is it from Hello Dolly? I'm forgetting, but it's a beautiful song, and it was we worked so hard in this song to craft a narrative of the emotional high points and low points through the song in such a way that every single one of the 50 of us up on stage were performing that and doing that and feeling that and putting that out there at the exact same time. Right. And that experience was something that's still in my bones that I can still yeah. feel. And yeah, it's special for me and it's special to watch that in an audience. And yeah, that's what we work on. And that's all the stuff beyond the notes on the page. You know, the notes yeah. on the page are your step zero as far as that's concerned. Right, and then right. you say, okay, what are we going to do with this? And what are we actually communicating using these notes as the clay for that you yeah. know, the platform. And well, music in general is the living art form. There's something that comes up on the show a lot when we talk about music, not verses in an adversarial sense, other types of art, but in comparison to other types of art. When we talk about sculpting, okay? Sure, you can get all metaphysical about sculpting. You're sculpting, you're taking away whatever shouldn't be there, or you're creating what wasn't there before. The, the sculpture was always inside the rock or the clay or the piece of wood or pumpkin or whatever it is that you're sculpting. Um, but when you're done, unless you're like a Laurie Anderson type sculptor and you're going to do some kind of performance art, it's done. It's yeah. a finished piece. You put it in a museum, you put it in your parlor, you put it in your house. Maybe it's useful. You use it, whatever it's industrial design, um, or a painting again, unless you're doing some kind of living performance art thing, you create the painting and it's done. And maybe the painter may think it's never finished, but it's a finished piece of art. It's in a museum or a house. Music is a living art form. It can be recorded, and we listen to recordings, but that was only a document of something that happened, and it continues to happen when you continue to perform it, and that's what I think is unique about music. And this magic that I've been talking about with choral music, there's science behind this. When people sing together, it's that instrument you carry around with you. It, the brain waves lock yes. up. Oh, yeah. Lock in, and yeah. things happen, and, and it's a really, really cool thing. I'm really, really looking forward to playing some of the music that the L.A. Choral Lab, Michael Alfaro is my guest today on Independence Day, by the way, just to check in with everybody. Um, we're going to be talking about music and choral music for the next hour or so, and I hope you stick around because this music is really beautiful, and people really need to hear this. They do have concerts. They just had one not so long ago. There's another one coming up in March. Uh, you can check out lachorallab.com to learn where that concert's going to be. We don't exactly know yet, and we're going to talk about why and the yeah. channel challenges involved with having a choral group. But first, I want to give people a taste of what this is. People may not even have ever heard choral music before, which sounds absurd in my life, and I'm sure in yours. Well, you know, I meet some people sometimes who haven't, and it's great to be able to play some for so them. So let's set this first song up, and this is like the first like actual you know question with a capital Q I'm going to ask, which is, like, who are the rock stars in choral music? Every genre has got the people. We know who they are in pop. You got your Taylor Swift, you got your Katy Perry, you got your whatever, right? Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, jazz, we know who those icons are. Choral music people may not know, but yeah. there's, who are these people? Well, currently, right now, in the current choral music world, the, I would say the two undisputed rock stars of choral music that everybody knows are Morton Lauridson and Eric Whitaker. Okay. Um, both of whom are West Coasters, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Um, uh, the, the piece that we're going to hear in a moment is by Eric Whitaker. Um, he people tend to love his music from you know middle school high school choirs all the way up through professional groups uh, perform perform his stuff and uh, we we really had a good time doing this one why is he a rock star why what is, makes him like, what makes what Eric, gives him like what separates him from everyone else doing choral music what's he doing differently a lot of people ask that question he i think he wrote music that filled a need um, in the in the 90s and the the early 2000s it filled a need 
And he continues to. He continues to, okay. yeah. Um, I didn't want to get all past tensey about it, because people think of Crow music as something that happened in the past. Right. But the unique right. thing about a guy like Whitaker is it's now. Right. And he's doing a lot of cool things with his virtual yeah. choir and everything, which we can also talk about. Right. Um, but he filled a need. The high school and college choirs were aching for for new music that that had some deep meaning and that spoke to people and that was recently written and that people could feel a connection to by virtue of it having just been written. So right. now here's this guy named Eric Whitaker and he writes Cloudburst from Reno. And, from Reno. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> he writes. Cloud I just learned that he, yeah, this morning. Right. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I expect him to be from Santa Barbara. That's that's a good point. You know, he looks like he's from Santa yeah. Barbara. That big mane of hair, similar to yours. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he uh, uh, Cloudburst and uh, Water Night, which which we're gonna, which our group performed, we're gonna listen to, were two of his earliest works, and they just sort of caught on like a wildfire. Every every high school and college choral student has sung either of those or both yeah. of them, or at least heard a group sing one of them because yeah. they're really well loved pieces of music, and for a reason, they're wonderful yeah. to sing, they're satisfying to sing, and they speak to audience members really immediately and right. really directly. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's the first choral composer growing up singing before. Like, it's like the, the pre-Star Wars. He's like the Star Wars of choral singers. Like, in my role, like, everything that you heard was pre or post him. Because he had such an influence on things that have happened since that, or, or maybe the Eddie Van Halen. I don't know. Like, everything was different before and after a certain time, right? And Star Wars, like, Pulp Fiction to me is the Star Wars of crime movies. Right, Eric Whitaker helped was part of what helped make yeah. singing cool again. Because Absolutely. everything, you know, yeah. I, I grew up I loving choral music and all its musty, moldy, right, old the way we Brahms church music, Brokner Renaissance and, music, yeah. which we're going to hear a little bit of later. Uh, you know, s- spirituals and all like the the tried and true styles within choral music. We all grew up singing all those sorts of things. And along came a guy. It's the same twelve notes. Mm-hmm. Same time signatures, the same stuff we've always had. But like, what makes a guy like Eddie Van Halen reinvent something? What makes a new thing come along? What is it they do differently? And it's their spirit and the way they interpret it. And they bring it into the modern era mm-hmm. in a way that, I'm just reiterating what you just said, but yep. that, that, that people can relate to. Yeah. So let's hear this. This is LA Choral Lab. It's a Los Angeles-based, uh, I was going to say acapella choir, but you guys are not acapella. You guys we call do... ourselves a chamber choir. Chamber choir, okay. Yeah. Uh, and they're based here in Los Angeles, lachorallab.org. Either is, works. Okay, is where you can find them. I'm um, talking to their conductor and music. Or what's your actual title? Your conductor artistic and director. artistic director. Yeah. Uh, Michael Alfera. And this is Eric Whitaker's Water Night from a recent concert, LA Choral Lab on Independence Day.
That is L.A. Choral Lab, conducted and directed by Michael Alfera here on Independence Day. Drop by lachorallab.org to learn everything you know about them. Eric Whitaker being the rock star of choral music. We've been talking about that and why he's a rock star. Um, let's kind of back up a little bit. Take me into how you got into choral music. You okay. know, we've kind of been talking like on a meta over level, right? Because it's a weird thing. Like, people get beat up. You know, like, fortunately, I mean, I was like 5'10". I wasn't a big guy. I wasn't super strong. But, like, I was just big enough to not get my ass kicked <laughs> in school for being in choir. And then once you get to high school, people figure out, like, there's actually, you know, for me at least, there were hot girls in choir. So, and, the, and the, <laughs> that's where we wanted. That's Those of us who, like, learned that, opened that door with that special key knew that. Sure. What got you into this kind of thing? It's a weird thing to get into. Sure, sure. Um, and I didn't get into it till probably later than most people. Um, I was a pianist from an early age, and most of my musical activities were, you know, classical piano, classical piano. I was on that track for okay. most of my childhood. Um, I was a band nerd in high school okay. more than a choral nerd. I didn't really 
discover choral music until I got to college. Really? And then I started taking voice wow. lessons. Yeah. I didn't really have much of a voice to use. I, I didn't have a naturally good voice. Were you be- in choir as well in high school? No. Not at all. No. No, I was, I was doing a lot of music. I was composing pieces for orchestra, and I was you know, still doing my piano stuff. So I was doing a lot of that. And I loved all of that, and I still love all of that. Um, but yeah, I got to college, and I started taking voice lessons, and... My voice teacher really helped me open up and unlock this voice that I had. And suddenly I was singing and I'm singing in these groups. And I said to myself, oh, my gosh, this is what I've been going for all this time. Not to belittle instrumental music at all because I love it. But that immediacy of here I am, I'm connecting with a conductor. I'm singing with people around me. The vibrations of my voice are locking in the air with the vibrations of the other people's voices. Oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. There's nothing like that. You well, know? the things that you love don't have to be automatically to the exception of other things. Right. Like, I think that's a misnomer that people yeah. have about things in their life. You can love something without hating something else. Everything's not binary. Right. right. You know. So there's that little thing. Uh, yeah. But, okay, so... Wow. Yeah. So, so band nerd... So now, if you're a pianist, though, were you playing in classical band because there's there's not as much piano in no band not really music. it's usually horns and winds and well i am um, and... i went to uh there's a there's a boarding school for music in michigan called interlochen arts oh Academy. yeah yeah if you know of interlochen? famous yeah yeah i went there for three years of high school so that was what enabled me to like find a place where i could like be a classical right. musician because yeah sitting around you know in the suburbs of west palm beach florida as a classical pianist and a composer right in high school there's not really much to be done yeah there. i got an, i got another gig at the retirement home <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna love this new like, piece I they're wrote. gonna love this new uh, atonal 20th century piece <laughs> i wrote <laughs> i think they enjoyed it no. <laughs> as, in as much as they could hear it right, right. <laughs> <laughs> i feel so bad like i'm i'm busting the balls of old people now anyway <laughs> enough of that onward go on so um where were we help me out uh growing talking about uh interlocking i guess Let's sure go there. you yeah, can mention that where i was because you, you were asking like what what that looks like to like be a classical pianist and everything well you know i didn't really know that as a kid for me it was just you know take lessons practice every day get better perform when you can get better get better i didn't you know i didn't really think that far ahead like okay, what is what is life as a classical pianist going to look like okay i'm gonna have my church job I'm going to play at temples on high holy days. I'm going to teach some lessons. I'm going to music direct some shows. I'm right. going to, you know, that all that all came later on. You could go to New York, Ex- do Broadway, play exactly. for Broadway, you could go to LA, piano. maybe do some sessions. Yeah, da- uh, dance accompanist, opera accompanist, session work, all of that. Yeah. Okay. Um so so that that's where I ended up event- eventually but I what was your I think your original and even question at Interlochen, was, yeah. there must there must be choirs there There were I didn't sing in them Interesting I was in the instrumental group This it is just, fascinating to me Yeah it just wasn't something early on for me but I don't know um it 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 gives me a different sensibility about it because I rehearse my choir like I practice piano Probably a little more gently, fortunately. But, um, you know, uh, as a pianist, I learned that when you practice a piece, you you never just sing through the piece, you know. You you, you zero in on these four bars and you sculpt right. them and you work them for 20 minutes and you get really into maybe just those two notes and how is my second finger moving to my third one and is that creating exactly the sound I want amidst all these other voices and you really get down into it. And that's what I do when I rehearse my choir. Um, and that's what I think good conductors do when they rehearse any ensemble, really getting down into the details right. like that. But my experience with what works in practicing piano has informed my, my you know, conducting and my leading yeah. group. 
Speaking, I was something you were saying made me think of that. You know, working with I was going to Brad Holmes, who was the choir director at Millican University, uh-huh. which is my alma mater, in the middle of the cornfields in central Illinois. But he's well known. I mean, in in circles. You know, he goes to Russia and he he gets invited to conferences. And I could have told you back then where he went and why, and how often. Um, but I mean, that was the, the that was the guy for me, in my world, and he. From the singer's perspective, and in a second, I want to kind of have you compare and contrast like the difference between being in the choir and the conductor, yeah, like yeah. how you can how you okay. how you meet the minds in the middle, and like yeah. how you make music out of that relationship because it's a weird relationship, it multiple people on one end and one person on the other end. And I remember because as a bass, like at the end of a song, he would just he would move his pinky like a quarter of an inch, <laughs> and that was like our cue or my cue as the bass to like lay on a little more of that thick stuff at the end. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. But we, but everybody knew. I'm sure every person in the choir knew which finger and which hand motion and which body motion and which thing, what that meant. Now, did he ever tell you this is what this means no. and this is what that? Of course, yeah, yeah. No, I mean he would look. I mean, yeah. that, I mean, you know, he at first he would, you know, when rehearsing, establishing that relationship in that particular context of that particular piece, you know, he'd look at us and basses, and maybe at one point he'd say, "Okay, and maybe give us a little more juice at the end of this." Mm-hmm. My word, not his. Sure. Um, and then when he got there, he would. But then once that. once we got into it and we'd played, you know, we'd sung the piece twenty, thirty times. You know, we just knew that the pinky or the the the. The little sprite move. I can't really do it because we're on we're on radio. You can't what that little ding thing <laughs> in the air. Tapping something. Little tapping, like tapping an invisible button. Yeah. You know, and this was this, and this was this, and it's it's such a fascinating thing. So you went from not being a band nerd, right? Not singing really, maybe writing some stuff, to interlocking where you're around the things, and then college is where you first started singing voice lessons so what made you decide to take voice lessons like out of all, after all these years <laughs> i had to as part of my composition okay. major <laughs> not funny ah uh, yeah <laughs> thanks degree requirements um, yeah now look at look at you now right no it took off instantly like uh-huh. i was in i was in three choirs by my second semester wow of, of college two of them one of them was an official choir and two of them were just random other volunteer groups so that i found before you said that you didn't feel like you were a good singer at the time was that just because it was raw and talent not refined in any way or no. something you never thought you could do or what I no, I think it was that by the time I had been, you know, a musician, I'd been studying music since age five, so twelve or thirteen years of music study, and like I knew what was good and what right, was right. bad. And because I opened my mouth and I was like, Meh, this does not sound good right okay. now. Um You were guilty of your own high standards. Very much. And it was the hardest thing for me as a voice student, but man, this is a lesson that I, I try to take to all the people that I teach, is that um, those high standards were actually what got in the way of my making progress in voice for a while. We are our own worst critics. Exactly, because especially with the singing, right? It's the, it's the instrument inside of you. So the, the moment your high standards come in, you start judging yourself, what happens? You tense up, you, 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 your chest caves in, and all these physical reactions that happen are exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing when you're singing. Ah, you want to be relaxed and you want to be grounded. So, so you have to, you really just have to, it's a practice of ignoring that critic voice and and just just opening up and working through the ugly sounds until right. you're able to find and replicate with consistency the more beautiful sounds. Right. It's almost like um, an aphorism I know or I use sometimes. Like It's almost like you have to learn the rules to break the rules. Mm-hmm. You can be wildly untrained and be incredibly talented. Mm. Uh, that's pretty common in yes. the world. Like In some ways, the best of us the best artists of all time were always like that. It was just in them and it had to get out. Right. And they're going to do, and in some ways they invented the rule book. Yeah. Right. Um, But that's the exception. Like that's just the universe or God given talent that 
some people just have in spades. Right. Right. And we all know their names. <laughs> they have their names on record bins and styles of music are named after them, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the rest of us have to work through that somehow, mm-hmm. you know, and even if we're maybe, you know, uh, you're, you're accomplished at what you do. You know, you're, I love that you, you're still, we're still learning oh, yeah. at these Always. things, Always. you know, and it's that you mentioned before, like that tiny little movement mm-hmm. between this finger and that finger on this tiny little one bar piece. Yes. And that's where, you know, it can be almost examined. Like that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of what makes a good musician great or a yeah. great musician exemplary or exemplary musician world-class Right, is the fact that that's an avocation and they know to do that. Yeah. To know that that's what you have to do to make that make sense. Even the most talented musicians in the world will probably tell you the exact same thing. Yeah. You know, you sit down at Whitaker or Yo-Yo Ma or who knows, right? Um, that's what they do all day. What do yeah. you do today, Mr. Ma? I spent 16 hours working on my ring finger in yep. bar 18. It's the obsession. It's the, you know? My old piano teacher, we would spend 45 minutes on the first bar of a Chopin nocturne in yeah. a lesson, and then he would say, okay, now go do that with every other bar on your own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come back, son, with uh, 1,700 hours of practice under that. Let's take the next stop on our little tour of choral music we're right. doing today, right. this week's Independence Day. Uh, and I love the contrast, because that's yeah. one of my favorite things about the, this choral music thing. The next piece, there's a lot, there's a rich tradition of uh, like traditional... Spirituals. Spirituals. Yeah. The slave songs. Yeah, these, this is an African-American spiritual. Um, yeah. Which have been kind of, and it's weird, you know, growing up in the Midwest, it was like a lot of white kids singing these these like Negro spirituals, which mm-hmm. was, a, that's the way it was written on the page. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and it, some choirs managed to capture that a little better than others did. But like, it just always felt weird, like being in Iowa in the wintertime singing a spiritual <laughs> song for me. But, you know, but, but that was for the director. That was their job to kind of like, hey, kid. Get into just this. try, yeah. just try to imagine what this might be like, and then impart a little bit of that into the music. Right. So this 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 is a song called Deep River, right. a piece. I keep yeah. calling them songs. It's a song. It, it, this is a song. You can yeah. definitely call. This Tell me, okay, so sure. Con- Whitaker, twentieth uh-huh. century, right? Twenty first century, even twenty first, twenty now twenty first because he's still 21st, active. Yeah. Um, going back a couple hundred years, you know. Tell me, tell me this, like, why, why this? Is this just part of the choral tradition to do? Uh, to do spiritual, to do a, yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, that's going to involve <laughs> a music history lesson about how these harmony groups ended up becoming barbershop choruses, which started American glee clubs, which then led to the American choral movement. And right. spirituals were sort of winded all the way through that as as a root of where the a cappella American harmonic singing sort of came right. from. Because you have like European music, which we yeah. brought over from our each of our home countries, which is a combination of classical music and folk music. Yeah. And then you combine in slave songs yeah. to that. Yeah. And it they both it's like anything else. They both had an effect on each other. Yeah. I mean composers, European American everywhere, have always been interested in the people's music. You know, you've got Bartok who went and cataloged all of the you know Hungarian folk melodies, and because they're they're great tunes, the reason they've survived for so long is because they've been passed down. They're sort of like earworms by natural right. um, natural selection of melody, you know. So they're these wonderful melodies that composers just go crazy for because you can do so much with them and 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 work with them. 
Music is fascinating that way because we could get into like ethnomusicology oh, yeah. and we could spend 16 <laughs> hours talking about that. We'll spare the audience that particular discussion. <laughs> sure. Um, but there's certain things like there's a, there's a few. I remember reading an article. There's a that melody that like that taunting. The doorbell. Yeah. The taunting. Oh, no, the taunting melody. Na, 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 nee, boo, boo, yeah. That one. The, the like that thing that you hear from The Simpsons. Like that. Yeah. That actually happens in multiple cultures. Yeah, because it's the third. It's the second and third note of the overtone series. Right. And, and, and uh, the next one. Da, 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 that high note. That's the next note of the overtone series, right. dude. That's just inherent in notes, and so our ears just find right. them. And that's you know? the, the math that yeah. we don't know about, we don't think about. It yeah. just happens in our ears, but everybody in the planet has the same set of ears. That's right. Yeah. And that, that it's, it crosses cultural bounds, and it's, and it's all tied in. So anyway, all right. So L.A. Choral Lab, Michael <laughs> yes. Alfaro is my guest. He's a uh, musical director, right, and conductor of this. Uh, they do concerts. How many concerts a year? Uh, two major season concerts. Two major season right. concerts and another smaller. I like that you call them gigs. Like they're gigs, you know. You don't see. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, my choral conductors never would have called them gigs. Like my jazz people, yeah, of course we're going to the gig. But I love hearing choir people kind of break out of the, the, uh, uh, the tucked-in shirt and sweater set and refer to it as a gig. Yeah, These are all musicians, gig. man. It's the same thing. So the, <laughs> tell me just a little bit about why this song. This is Deep River, traditional sure. song. Uh, and Moses we'll Hogan it. is the arranger of this, and that's really why I picked it. Moses Hogan, um, I call him the Mozart of you know this this kind of choral music. He also died at age 35, same mm -hmm. age that Mozart did. And during his time, he just cranked out hundreds of spiritual arrangements that are all and original compositions, and they're all absolute gems. And I just, the harmonies in this one in particular really speak to me. So this is uh, Moses Hogan's arrangement of Deep River. All right, fantastic. Michael Alfera, L.A. Choral Lab on Independence Day.
My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you so very much for listening to Independence Day. We come to you every other Wednesday night, indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Indepday. We've got uh, 50 plus videos these days on the video channel on the YouTube. Perhaps you've heard of YouTube, youtube.com slash videos. And we're even on Instagram, I think, at Indepday. So you can meet us in all kinds of different places. And also this week's guest, Michael Alfera. He's the conductor and artistic director for L.A. Choral Lab. Uh, Los Angeles-based choir. How many voices exactly? 22. Park, 22 voices. Okay. Uh, and they do a mixture of uh, traditional music, modern music, com- new composers, older composers uh, in the choral music realm, which is what we're kind of talking about today. And I love this. This is my background, man. I, l- I love this stuff. I miss this stuff of all the things that I don't get to do. This is one of the things. And I, it's like I'm... There, there's got to be a word, maybe another culture has a word for being happily jealous of of somebody and what they do it's not an envious jealous that i have but it's like a it's like a man you go man like jealousy of what you do because you're doing what i you know conducting yay or nay whatever i could care less for me personally but singing choral music regularly is like something i always wanted to do and did through college and then now there's an alumni thing every now and again i get to go do but i don't get to go do it man so kudos thank you it's Thank great. You. And you guys are great. I, I had the good fortune, not too terribly long ago, to sit in on a rehearsal, record some tracks from that. The web extra, the web exclusive song for this week's episode will be a song from that. So we'll, you'll hear that if you go to the website. Uh, Indepte.com is where you can hear that. I think we're going to do a video, too, of that. Um, so we, we heard some Eric Whitaker. Yep. 20th century, late 20th century, still active, 21st century composer, modern um, Cloudburst was a big song. They played that, that on KCRW. Big, yeah, believe it or not, Cloudburst choral music on KCRW. Choral music on the radio. It's like, like people like to, to talk about jazz not being heard. It's like, man, choral music is, <laughs> is like he's even smaller. Yeah, I think it's like the stepchild under the stairs. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a beautiful stepchild under the stairs. I and then we it. heard uh, a traditional song arranged by Moses Hogan, mm-hmm. uh, "Deep River," a spiritual song. Uh, and I love the contrast between those two pieces. Talk to me as a conductor. Mm. A, picking repertoire. Yeah. B, these are professional singers that you're working with. Most of them. Most of Vast them. majority. Yeah. They're trained, at least. Trained, at, all at trained. minimum. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're used to switching gears. Yeah. Right? So maybe back up, not specifically with your choir, but from a, a choir director's perspective, how do you get into somebody's head as a singer or a group of singers into their heads, respectively, and switch from something like Whitaker to a, a, a spiritual, spiritual song? Like that. Like Good question. Artistically. Well, first of all, I make sure that I have the right people in the ensemble who are vocally capable of doing that. You said something interesting a second ago. You said they're professional, so that means that they're readily able to switch. I don't always find that that's true of professional singers. And in fact, some professional uh, musicians that I know get, get really stuck on their one track. I am an opera singer. I am a, I am a musical theater singer. I am a this. So I really make, so that's the first part of that. I really make it an effort to make sure that the singers that I get have voices who are, who, which work in Renaissance music and are going to work in a modern choral composition or in a spiritual or in, you know, anything else that we do. But your question was, okay, then how do we actually affect that? difference in the rehearsal and performance process um it has a lot to do with how i rehearse the piece how i lead that as a conductor um so okay let's see for water night the, the whitaker piece yeah for the whitaker piece i mean you have to look at the score every piece the score there's the answer the score tells you how to rehearse the piece so water night as you heard that piece has 
several chords with eight or nine different notes cluster all chords. just shimmering in them cluster chords right so sometimes we just have to stop and just build that chord up but we have to build it logically you have to say okay all the b flats sing okay now add all the e flats in there okay let's add the g flats now we've got an e flat minor chord but there's also that a flat that we need to get in there and he put that c in there to give it some crunch so you know we just we build it up like that to really get the visceral experience of this is what it feels like to collectively create this sonority right now um, but Deep River is not necessarily like that. It's more about the the line, the, the melodic line and the harmony that, that pulls underneath that. So in that piece, it's a lot more about getting the choir to look up at my gesture as I'm speaking, my hands are moving in circles right now, you know, conducting gesture to get them to feel this is where the phrase pulls and this is where it relaxes at the end. And the more we can collectively feel that, the more we're collectively feeling the style. So it really starts with how I rehearse the piece from day one and how I sort of help lead the group to perceive the music and what our collective goal in the music is. Right. I think that's what leads to the different genres and styles. And, well, speak to me of timbre, too. Sure, Because sure. that's a big thing, and maybe that was, I, I implied that, but it wasn't clear enough about that, because that's a big difference. Like, how you make your voice sound when you're switching from an, a Whitaker piece to uh, a, a spiritual-type piece. Working, you know, Brad Holmes, the second time he'll come up, the guy that was the choir director, God bless him. He would, you know, we were in college age, so, you know, we'd all been singing for a while. Some of us were even doing some professional work at that point. And getting us to sound differently, like doing a, a Billings pieces, yeah. early American pieces, which were very open, stacked fifths of chords. Almost shape note type and, music. And like hymns, shape note music yeah. and bright, yeah. very forward, almost, almost. I don't want to say painful because he wouldn't ever do anything that would make us actually be in pain, but right, for their voices. Right. But, you know, and God grant we may meet, like yeah, really forward. Sound, and, yeah. and then, but then switch and do a Rachmaninoff oh, piece. Oh, yeah, and put it way back in the Russian and then in placement, a deep sure. Russian, and then do a spiritual where it's right. deep in a different way entirely, right? Because right? people who are listening, you know, may not know choral music and know that it's even a thing. Yeah. If they just go hear the concert. They may not even realize that it sounds different. It just sounds like it should sound if it's a spiritual versus a Whitaker piece. Right. Like, speak to that a little bit. Sure. I mean, it's still in the rehearsal process. I am the kind of conductor that will sing and demonstrate lines for, for my singers. And I feel that any conductor should walk into the first rehearsal being able to sing right off the bat any of the musical lines of 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 any of the parts of the pieces they're conducting. So that when I am able to demonstrate and they're, you know, maybe not singing it with enough of that, hey, enough of that forward tone, I can be like, all right, guys, we just need a little more, hey, day, day. And then they hear that and they replicate it. I find that more effective with my professional singers than, you know, explaining verbally, okay, make sure your soft palate is raised, but but keep the, for, you know, keep the resonance in the mat, all this different stuff. Right, the we mechanics. Do, yeah, I, I go, mechanics is my sort of like last it's my last resort. If I've tried everything else, if I've tried gesture, because, you know, there are ways that I can, you know, raise my wrist and shape my hands to suggest the shaping of the inside of the mouth that then affects the tone color that you're talking about. So if I've tried that and I've tried... Um, you know, demonstrating it, but then I also, you know, I'll, I'll take it from the the emotional side of it. So, Water Night to me, that piece is a dream, and so to get in a dreamlike state, and you're just you're just floating in this timeless dream throughout the night. That also helps people get into the right style for it. Right. And then, if that still fails and somebody's still not getting it, I'll say, okay, you need to lower your jaw and really make sure your right. you know your cheekbones are high right here, or whatever it wherever, yeah. whatever it needs. And I guess point. that's what I'm getting into is a little bit of a. I mean, <laughs> this is a, I'm I'm reappropriating this word but it's like the voodoo of being a choir director choir <laughs> director because there's there's that psychological kind of game you have to play where you almost have to trick these people these are not 
slaves. No, they're <laughs> human beings. Well, they're <laughs> modern Los Angeles <laughs> yes. dwellers. Yeah. Their problems resolve around their iPhone charger that died. <laughs> uh, the crappy traffic on the 10 and the 405. Mm. Um, driving in the rain in Los Angeles. Right. Paying bills. Right. Uh, you know, missing relatives who are back in Ottumwa or wherever they are. Right. right? So that's the voodoo part of it. Right like getting into people's heads. Like you, that, that very descriptive thing you just said a second ago. It's like there's a, there's a separate performance aspect that a choir director does when conducting a choir that's only for the choir. That's right. Oh, absolutely. It's our own little club, and we right. have our own little ways of, of operating. You, know, you mentioned um, in an earlier segment about... about oh, I, I, I forgot it. Let's keep going what we were talking about. Sorry about sure. that. I'll bring it back up later. It'll come back around. Yeah, We've got yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, let's play another... Let's do another song yeah, here, another it. piece here. In. I think this next one is the uh, Where Go the Boats. Tell right. Me. Okay, so um, one of the things I love about my group and how it's working right now is just pieces are just sort of coming to me. You know, composers are contacting me and singers in my group know composers. So, so this composer, Dale Trumbor, she lives here in L.A. She's a wonderful composer, wonderful person, and she's a friend of one of our sopranos. And uh, this soprano in our group said to me, you should look at some of Dale's music. And I did, and it was this beautiful piece. This is a Robert Louis Stevenson poem. Um, it's set to, to really gorgeous music. Um, and I, when I, when I saw, cause you, you asked, oh, that's something you mentioned earlier. How does a, how does a conductor pick the right repertoire for the mm -hmm. group? Because that's also related to the question of style. Some groups are not good at certain styles and my group probably has its styles that we should probably steer clear of too. And we're still young. So we're figuring that out. But this was the example of a piece where I looked at and said, our group's going to sound really, really good doing that. And you can just tell because of how the parts are written, you know, where the sopranos lie, like how, how, are, how are the women going to sound if they're up there, or how low is she expecting the basses, how, how resonant is she expecting the basses, how floaty is she expecting the tenors to be here. And as I listened through the piece and I saw it the first time, I said, this is, this is a piece for our group. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I pick repertoire. I just try to hear the best I can how it's going to sound with our group. Sometimes it's excellent, sometimes it's actually not. So tell me this, uh, before we, real quick, then I want to get to this piece, is, I mean, are you the type of person who can look at a score and hear that in your head? You know, people ask me that. The analogy that I use, I, it's, it's, a, it's a yes with an asterisk. It's like, it's the difference between if you have really bad vision and you're looking at the world with your glasses on versus off. Like, I can look, a, a simple score I can look at, and with glasses on clarity, I can I can hear the progression of the harmonies and things. If things get more complicated, I can look through and I can see it, but but it's like that analogy. It's like it's like I'm seeing it, but it's all a little bit blurry, or maybe yeah, it's yeah. like I'm hearing it through the end of a, of a tunnel or something like that, you know, and then I have to study it more. I have to study it more until, um, until I can hear all the harmonies in my head yeah. as they go. I mean, I could only do that. I mean, I'm a trained musician. I can read to a certain extent. It's kind of, at, that skill's kind of atrophied for me a little bit, at least in terms of like the instruments I play. I was always, that's the funniest thing. I was always the best at sight reading voice, which sounds weird. Most yeah, people think that it's usually the other way most around. Most people would think it would be with an instrument, but right. for me, it was always the easiest with voice. I don't know exactly why that was. Um, maybe I was just bad at practicing the instruments that I was supposed to be practicing, but voice is the one I did the most and I, I had the most experience at it. Um, but I couldn't just look at a score and hear, look, look at all the parts and go, oh, yeah, that's how that sounds at all. I, I could go. I remember I had to do a report once and I did uh, a report on Rachmaninoff's Vespers. And I mm -hmm. went over to the University of Illinois where they had a score for Vespers, the whole thing. Because we had just done the one piece. And then I bought the CD and listened to the whole thing, became very familiar with it. But I could pull out the score there having sung it or having heard it. 
and f- go, ah, yeah, okay, now I see what they're doing, yeah. and I see how this harmony works with that, and I see that's the five of five, and this is this, and blah, 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 Precisely, blah. yeah. Um, but that's that's a very interesting skill, I think, choir directors. Well, it's, it's absolutely necessary, because at any given point, a choir director has to be in two different places in, in any performance or rehearsal. I have to be exactly with my singers and hearing them at the moment they're singing what actual sound is coming out of their mouths, but I also need to be a quarter second ahead audiating, which is to say imagining in my mind's ear the next thing that's coming along because I have to will that out of them. So yeah, it's not just like a helpful skill for a conductor to have on the side because it helps them rehearse or anything. It's a necessary like tape that needs to be, it's a track that needs to play in a conductor's mind as they go through the piece, the, that okay. conception of what it's about to sound like. Yeah, good stuff, man. Yeah. Michael Elfera, L.A. Choral Lab. This is the song or the piece. What's a piece or song? I'm going to keep. Let's go with peace on this one. This is a piece by a composer. So this is Where Go the Boats. Dale Trumbor, Los Angeles composer. Yeah. So cool. You can check her out. That's right. Dale Trumbor. She must have a website. DaleTrumbor.com. See, look at you. You know all this stuff. Okay, L.A. Choral Lab on Independence Day.
My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. That is L.A. Choral Lab. Drop by lacorallab.org. Los Angeles-based choir, chamber choir. I'm sitting with their artistic director and conductor, Michael Alfera. Hello, Michael. Thanks for being on the show. Glad to be here. It's so funny. I never say that. I just wanted to say that just once. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, exactly. And you said exactly yeah. the right thing. You know, it's like the cliche, but sometimes the cliche is kind of fun to do. You kind of go, it's like you too. They finally embraced the fact that rock and roll is ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm, I'm like the Octung baby. Like they'd always been very earnest. And all of a sudden they like, they kind of looked around at themselves and said, this is ridiculous what we do. And they just embrace that ridiculousness. So let's embrace the cliche at least for 20 seconds. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for being on the big show. It's great to be here. All right. So let's, now that we've got that out of the way. Uh, I want to talk about L.A. Choral Lab specifically yeah. and like what you were doing leading up to that because the choir is not that old. No. A year and a half? Uh, about a year and a half, yeah. Our first okay. rehearsal was May 2014. Okay. Um, because that seems like a really cool thing to do but yet a really strange thing to do. Like what were you doing for a living leading up to that? What, you know, Were you teaching lessons, singing? Like what were you doing? Yeah, I'm, well, a lot of the same things, similar things to what I'm doing right now. Um, for six years, I was the accompanist for the Gay Men's Chorus of Los okay. Angeles. And I'm still, you know, real close friends with all those guys. Yeah. They're great. Um, and then, you know, everything else, like you mentioned, that comes along with with the, with the freelance life, sessions and lessons and recordings and audition prep and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I was just, what I was lacking and what I was missing is a situation, and we touched on this, I think, in the first segment, where we, my friends and I, where I felt we were all really coming together for a common purpose, which is to make really beautiful music for the right reasons, which is to say for the love of the music and for right. the, the importance of which expression. Which is hard to do. It's in, so hard. Because there's the art and commerce. Yeah. There's that overlap yeah. that sucks. Yeah. Right? And because we have to eat. We can't not right. do that, and we have to have shelter, and we have to. And in, in, in the life in music, that can be a big challenge. It's tough, you know. I get it. Organizations, you know, if they need to put on a show, they don't have the money to hire the full the full orchestra or the quartet or whatever for you know four or five rehearsals, so they can make everything all perfect. You know, you're you're in there with one rehearsal, you play and you go. And if you if it's mostly right, that's good. And and like you said, art and commerce. I totally get that. That is the reality of things, and I get why that has to be the reality of things but I wanted to create something different because the reasons why I got into music and what I loved about music from being a little kid is the fact that I could sit there for 45 minutes with four bars of a Bach fugue and just figure out exactly how to make those four voices play out and yeah that doesn't go with the commerce side of right. things it's completely impractical and there's no business model in that well I mean just to go back to a little bit of music history you go back to these composers that everybody knows mm -hmm. how many of them died in poverty Many of them. Many of yeah. them. Yeah. And furthermore, how many of them, even when they were active, were at the behest of a wealthy king or lord? Or almost 100% Almost of all of them. Almost. Still to this day, Beethoven's sonatas right. have in italics the name of the duke or the duchess to whom the piece is dedicated. Indeed. Well, not just paid for. Yeah. By, financed by. Absolutely. And that's the thing. You know, the starving artist thing is not a new thing. This has <laughs> always been the case. I mean, right. a lot of these people, not just public like abject poverty. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's the story, Jaco Pastorius, legendary bass player. Oh, I mean, I he sold his bass at one point because he was so into drugs or whatever substance he was into, you know, so... Uh, this is something that's, it's a big deal. So I guess that's, that's, I, I don't want to go all dark on this. That's not my no, point. I, I but what I'm asking I, is like, what made you decide to take the risk 
I mean, maybe you've already answered it because it was for the love of the music. But to make that specific decision, you know, you're making a living in music, you're doing okay. What makes you take that extra risk to, because it's, it's not like you're even going to start uh, like a rock band or a country band where you may be able to just play shows in Bakersfield and make some regular money. That just seems like a big risk to start a choir. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd. In 2014 absurd. when yeah, you started this. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd. Like I said, there's no business model for it. It doesn't make sense. But right. it was just something that I had to do. Okay. Um, it was, and it, you know, and and the 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 things that my singers tell me it, it bear that out as well. You know, they're they're they didn't have any classical singing right. outlets either before before this group came along. Um, but yeah, to it's funny. I did an interview for somebody early on in the group, and her first question was. What makes you think LA needs another choral music ensemble? Because mm-hmm. there's, you know, a dozen or so, maybe a little, a few more than that. Things come, things go. But for me, it wasn't about that. It was about doing something that, and I think anybody who's experienced a gigging period of their life gets this, where there's really a, a gulf between the the gigs that you do where people are putting the music in front of you and giving you a check to do that music as best you can versus this is my pet project and this is what comes out of my deepest truth as an artist and a person. And um, I didn't, I, I, I didn't have the perspective to realize that that latter category didn't happen automatically as a gigging musician. I just sort of jumped in right out of college to I'll play for this and I'll play for that and I'll do this. And sure. I, you know, I was making a living as a pianist yeah. and that's fine. But you know, you talk about these artists who had their poverty times. I don't think, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, to take this as a general statement. You know, there, there's money to be made in the arts. I know plenty of people who who are able to to pay their expenses by gigging. But these great artists that, you talking, that you're talking about that were poor, I don't think some of them were poor because they were... F- because that was their only choice. I think some of them chose to be poor because they would rather not work on something that wasn't true to who they are as an artist than just take some random gig to make them a paycheck at the end of the day. I and I've I have friends I have a good friend of mine. He slept he slept on a couch for six months because he didn't want to take bad gigs. Right. And now he's got a gig and he's going to be touring Asia for crowds of ten thousand next yeah. year because he waited for that to come along. There's you know? a phrase I use. You know, at one point this was actually for an alumni choir rehearsal. Like you know, we were getting back together to meet. We were going to go do a tour to England with the choir. They were uh, the choir from my college, Millican University, was going to go to an England tour, a British tour. Uh, and they wanted to do an alumni choir, which for those of us who are graduated and some of us making a living in music, some of us not, um, a chance to go and just see England, do some singing. It's a kind of a combination of things, right? And, you know, the first rehearsal, you know, they were in, because we worked from all over the country at this point. We'd all scattered like the wind. I was living in Chicago at the time. It was easier. I was only three hours away. So there was like a Chicago rehearsal, the biggest major city where most of us were, right? And that's where we were leaving from anyway. And... We had to kind of get up and introduce ourselves because some of them I knew I had gone to college with. They were there when, uh, and we were the ones who were going to be going to the pubs together once we got to England because I knew them and we had lots of stories to laugh about. But there were some kids there, you know, it had been several years since I graduated. There were some people there I didn't know at all. So we had to introduce ourselves. The whole point of this long winded story leads to the fact that they said, Well, you know, who, who are you? What's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? 
And I said, well, I'm Joe Armstrong. Uh, and I'm a musician, which means, or I'm a songwriter, which means I'll do anything you'll pay me to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, there's some truth to that. And I say that as a joke, but also not as a joke. Because, I mean, I've done, like most musicians, everything you can think of. I've been paid to do the most arcane, ridiculous things known to man. But there's things that I will not do. Mm. And, the, and to your point, that's the whole point of this. Is right. that the farther you get into music, that list of things that you won't do gets longer. Right. The truer you get to your yeah. vision, yeah. the truer you get to why you are doing what you're doing. I mean, mm. again, you've got to eat. If it comes down to it, sure. you're going to dig the hole. Sure. You're going to take the cashier job or the bartending job, whatever you're going to do, because it can't get to that point. Um, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe, you know, I know musicians who've lived out of their cars. That's it, because they choose not to. That's yeah. This is what I'm doing. Period. They know where they're putting their earth, their energy. Yeah. Anyway, that's a like, kind of a long side diatribe no, on my part. No, I think there. it's an interesting side because it's, it's you know we joke about it. You know, I'll do anything you'll pay me to do. But I don't know. You know, anymore now that I'm focused on things and I've got goals and I've got specific goals and that's the same way. So let's tie it back into LA Coral Lab. So sure. you make. Do you remember the moment where you made that decision to start the group? Yeah. Were well, you like I sitting was, around in your house? Were you like <laughs> I was on top on, of a mountain? Where I, were you? I was on almost on top of a mountain. I was on vacation on Catalina Island. Oh, okay. With, with my good friend who sings in the group now and she she gave me a piece of paper and she said what would your dream choir be she said write down your dream choir soprano alto tenor bass four quadrants and so i wrote down six singers that i knew from just around you know uh -huh. amazing musicians that I, I had worked with before and that was a 24 uh person 24 name list okay. and of those 24 i had 24 coffee dates over the next three weeks and told everybody wow. okay this is this crazy idea that i have what do you think what do you think about this um you know, I, I needed some funding to start it up. And I, you know, so I just went to, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, I just went to some people I knew who supported the arts and other things. And I, I said, this is what I'm doing. You want to help me? And in general, the answer was, heck yeah. Okay. You know, um, so. So let me, let me stop you real quick, because this is really, this is exactly what I want to talk about in terms of like the mechanics of putting this together. I know how to start a rock band. I know how <laughs> to start a country band. I know how to start a folk band. I've been in choirs, but I want to hear like this, this process yeah. from Catalina, this, these, coffee dates you're talking about and, yeah. and how you got the yeses okay yeah. but first another piece Let's do and it. this is another thing we're going to jump around in time again we're going Perfect. back to the renaissance here yep uh sicut cervus correct okay. as the deer longs for the water it's a latin text okay tell me just a little bit about this piece and then sure. we'll, we'll hear it um i mean we don't know too much about individual renaissance pieces but of course well i just anything sure. you can say about palestrina it. giovanni Paluigi da palestrina is because this is a little tiny, mini music history lesson, considered the savior of polyphony. Uh, all mm. of the Catholic church leaders were beginning to worry as the Renaissance progressed that music was getting too florid, too fancy, and that all the focus was leaving the words and was becoming on just the singers and how good they were and the composer and how clever of a piece they could write. Palestrina came in and he wrote beautiful music that is balanced, that puts just the right amount of emphasis on the words and just the right amount of emphasis on the music, and he convinced the church leaders to allow polyphony, to allow multiple voice music to continue to be performed in the church. So we call him the savior of polyphony sometimes. Very nice. Polyphony, for those of you not in the know, is just more than one yeah. note at the same time. It, it, like a mon like monophonic yeah. instrument is an instrument that plays one note at a mm -hmm. time, like a saxophone plays one note. A guitar is a polyphonic instrument, mm -hmm. piano is polyphonic instrument, yeah. choirs, I guess, could theoretically be monophonic if everybody's sang in unison. Well, we have we have monophonic, homophonic, and right. polyphonic. So yeah, monophonic would be like Gregorian chant. Right. Homophonic means we're all singing the same words at the same time, but on like a different chord. It's like a hymn, a church mm -hmm. hymn is homophonic. And then polyphonic refers to like a fugue or things mm -hmm. where in, in choral music, at least, where the individual lines are doing different things right. at different times. Indeed. Very, very nice. Okay. So LA Choral Lab, let's hear this. Sicut Cervus, Renaissance Music on Independence Day. 
My name is Joe Armstrong. I'm sitting with Michael Alfera. He's the conductor and artistic director of the L.A. Is it the L.A. Choral Lab or is it L.A. Choral Lab? Yes. <laughs> it's L.A. Like, Choral Lab works. Yeah, sure, that's it, what's well, on our logo. That may or may not be important to people. Like in music, it's a funny thing. Like Pink Floyd at one point was the Pink Floyd. Oh, is that right? Because <laughs> that was like a very big thing at the time. Like, or like people don't know this. The Eagles, Don Henley, Glenn Fry and company, Joe Walsh, are Eagles. And Glenn Fry is maniacal about this. Everyone says the Eagles, but he's always maintained that it's Eagles and everyone's just screwed it up for 30 years wow. or whatever. But so that, that huh. the thing, I don't want to get all prima donna about it, sure. but you know, at least I give you the option of whether it's the L.A. Coral Yeah, lab or, it's the lab and yeah, it, the, we'll go with the. Sure. Okay. And it doesn't, you know, and it may or may not matter. No, make me think about that. That's important. It may not matter. <laughs> anyway. All right. So the L.A., the L.A. Coral Lab uh, that you can drop by their website, lacorallab.org. Facebook, facebook.com slash LA Coral Lab, Instagram. They're LA Coral Lab everywhere. Everything. Pretty yeah. much. Which <laughs> pretty is much. and that's and that's that's hard to do in this, you know, age of the internet. Almost I t- say this all the time, bands, like when you start new bands, you almost go to look up and see if anybody's got the banding before you even do anything else. <laughs> yeah. Because it's you gotta be branded. Everyone's gotta be branded. But you guys are lucky. There was no LA Coral Lab. No, it, it worked for a name. I didn't know a name for a while and just sort of popped in. Yeah. And since we focus on new music by living composers, the lab thing seemed appropriate. Yeah. So that's what we Yeah, wanted. and that, that aspect of it, like that almost uh, 21st century, like I don't want to say science approach, but like a laboratory is what yeah, you think a of. Laboratory. When, a laboratory. <laughs> when you go in and you're, you're examining something and deconstructing it. And, and that, but that works for yeah. what you guys do. Oh, and definitely. girls. It's great. I say you guys in the general yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, so... We were talking right before that piece, which is a beautiful piece, by the way. Excellent work. Thanks. Um, is 
you had this idea on Catalina. You right. want you'd been working as a musician, mm-hmm. as a mostly a pianist, mostly a pianist, as a con- uh, not a conductor, uh, um, a accompanist, accompanist. Yeah. You, your friend said, "What do you want to do?" And you said, "I want to start a choir." Mm-hmm. And it sounded like the craziest idea. And I've, I'm very much an advocate of the idea that the the fact that the or the the thought that the craziest idea is always the best idea because mm, that's where the real stuff is. That's what you really want to do. It's the craziest idea you can think of. Yeah. Right. Climbing Mount Everest or who knows. Yeah. Uh, so now you've had the idea, and now you're talking. You said before you met with you had 24 coffee dates. 24 you had, a coffee list, you had like a go-to list weeks. of people. I had my so go-to list of people. Um, I met with 24 people, and I got 22 yeses. And the only two no's were people who wanted to do it but couldn't because I had already picked the concert date and schedules right. or whatever. So I mean, I can wow. pretty much say from concert number one, I was conducting my dream choir. Wow. It was amazing how, and that speaks to everything we've been talking about earlier, right? Everybody just jumped at it. I mean, these are people who, like like we said, are professional musicians. They're going to their sessions. They get paid really, really well for what they're doing. I said, look, I'll I'll give you a check for gas money at the end of the concert, but I can't pay you what a session's going to pay you. It's okay. I don't mind. I just want to sing good classical choral music. And so that's when I had that light bulb moment. I was like, yeah, this is a good thing that I'm doing right here. This is something that needs to happen. And and kudos. And it, it really sounds like the universe. Like, it's funny when that happens oh, yeah. in life. I've had that happen a couple times, and I wish it would happen more for the love of God. <laughs> is that you? Because I'm, I'm well known for doing the craziest thing. You know, I mean, I, I, know, man, I don't mean like jumping off of the sides of buildings or anything, but, you know, I've done a lot of what other normal, normal non music people would consider to be crazy things in my life. Make different choices. All, the list of girlfriends who are ex girlfriends who are ex girlfriends because they did not understand my life choices is very long. Oh. You know, and they just, they couldn't really, they were part of what I would call like a, a not gay straight, but like the straight community, the non artistic community. Sure. They didn't understand why would you fix your amplifier instead of. That Going to the mall. Your, your molar. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Why would you? Yeah. Why is this priority? And not why would that? you go on tour rather than getting health insurance? Why would you? <laughs> these are choices that we no, make perfect yeah. sense to yeah. to me. Because what? It, what right. What? Are, what are you doing if you're not expressing your art? What are you doing if you're not yeah. making music? You know. Uh, so okay. So now you've got your twenty-two yeses. Yeah. And because this is this is like the interesting thing, like you're, it's not like starting a rock band, like starting a rock band. OK, I, I talk to some friends, I, I maybe I put an ad in Craigslist or whatever. Maybe they're paid. Maybe they're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got some songs. We're mm-hmm. going to go to rehearsal space. We rehearse some stuff. And then we try to find a gig and we go. Right. Mm-hmm. This, it's not like that with choral music. You're not, not playing in a bar. No, no. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure of with the L.A. Choral Lab was that our, you know, we like I said, we do two major concerts per year. Those are. Those are us. Those are the LA Choral Lab. Those are our product. Those are what we advertise. Those are what we want people to come see. Now, of course, renting out a medium-sized concert hall and producer and security and insurance and right. sheet music and Le- all these It becomes things. a logistical consideration it's, at this it's point. It's logistical. It's financial. It's budget. Right. It's administrative. It's all of these different things. So, you know, I had to... I had to find some funding for this, but um, and that's another universe thing of just finding pe- people came to me all practically. Once I decided, hey, I need to do this, and this group needs to exist, and we need to make really, really good music, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be to find people who were willing to become financial supporters. It almost just became this natural process. It just sort of happened. So, And yeah. I was definitely very worried about that because I, I yeah. I'm not comfortable talking about money, not, not naturally at least. Well, so. and, that's, and that's my point. I'm, I'm using the rock band thing or you know a pop band as kind of like the example because that's the classic example. Like we get some songs, 
songs. We rehearse it for in high school. We rehearse in the garage or the basement. And now that we're adults, we rent a space uh, or find a bar that's closed or whatever we do. We find the space. Like, it, there's no rules. There's not a path, but there's at least like some signposts you can almost see. Sure. You know, when you're starting a choral ensemble, you know, you, you like I said, you need to. That's a you're you're rehearsing. Like, how do you even find a rehearsal space for something like that? And you, when I was it, visited your rehearsal, it was in a church. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in do that you case, pay the church for that rehearsal. We do. Yeah, okay. they, we, they charge us a monthly rental fee for the use of that space. Um, uh, that church was the church. It still is the church where the Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles, okay. where I mentioned, rehearses, All right, right. and several other ensembles rehearse there. So that that church is a big part of the the classical music community in LA, and we love them. First Congregational Church of Los Angeles, they're wonderful. Um, so yeah, we we rented out that space, and um, yeah, it, it there there's no formula for it because you're right; it's probably only been done a dozen or a couple dozen <laughs> times. Right. Starting a new choral group. Um, but for me, it was just a matter of, okay, who do I know that knows about how to set up a spreadsheet to keep track of our finances? Who do I know right. that knows a little bit about marketing and PR? Who knows about development and fundraising? Who can help me get this all set up? And people were so willing to help and share expertise and still are. And I'm so grateful to my friends who are. That's how I've been able to to, to muddle through all of this is just by relying on the expertise of, of people who who want to help this thing become something big. You know? Yeah. I, and it's, it's, it's such a cool thing. I don't, I don't, it's a kind of maybe an overused word. You know, people use the word awesome all the time or cool or whatever. But it's a unique thing, and it's a cool thing. It's a different thing. You know, especially, it's, a, it's very deep in my background. I, mean, I keep coming back to that, you know, something. I, but in now making that exist in the real world, starting from nothing and doing that, you know, it's a fascinating process. It's what's the reason you're talking to me right now. Like, right. Well, it, it's because it's new and it's crazy and it's still growing. You've done, if you started in 2014, you say you do two major concerts. Are you, you've done three major concerts? We've done three concerts so far. Look at, look how good I am at Simple Math. <laughs> Great job. Even for a musician. <laughs> I'm not to a bar of four for yet, but I can do a bar of three for. Um, so, You've got the singers. You've got the. You found some financial backing. And you said mm-hmm. that wasn't as as hard as you thought. I mean, where do you even find music for this kinds of thing? Are there other organizations that are supporting the arts in Los Angeles? Uh, there, there are. I mean, you've got the LA County Arts Commission. You've got you've got grant grant granting organizations who will who will give you funding if you apply for it. Um, for me, it's been a lot of um, you know individual private contributions. People who believe in the vision of this group and who come to our concerts and say, hey, this is really high-quality choral music. Here, I'll get, this is an interesting statistic for you. And this is all information that's available on GuideStar online, so I'm not blowing anybody's cover here. This is all public information. L.A., uh, here, here, let's play a game. The L.A. Master Chorale's yearly operating budget is about $5 million. What is the L.A. Phil's yearly operating budget, knowing that that's the core, by comparison? The big LA's biggest choral organization, five million. LA Phil, one hundred and ten million. And I mean, I only mention that to just point out, like, you know, the symphony orchestra is an institution. And you said earlier, we turn on the radio, we never hear any choral music. You're right. It's just on the classical station. On the yeah, and even on the classical station, yeah, you you just you just don't hear it. It's over. KCRW that random Saturday morning when they played the Eric Whitaker song was the only time I think in my entire life I have. Well, it's not entirely true. The classical stations sometimes will play it, but that's the only time I've ever heard anything like that on the radio. My point is, I think there is a, 
I, I, you know, we have the glee phenomenon. We have the everybody's interested right. in, okay. in what it's like to be a performer and getting behind the curtain in acapella groups and people singing together. Like, I see no reason why classical choral music could not grow in stature and become the sort of institution that the American Symphony Orchestra also is right now. I think it absolutely has that capability. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because that which makes it a liability also becomes an asset when you're talking about logistics. Because uh, one of the things I want to ask you about next before we get to this last piece, this is a wonderful piece, I can't wait for everybody to hear this, yeah. is uh, when it comes to things like touring, like there's groups like the King Singers right. or uh, name me Chanticleer. Some, Chanticleer. There's yeah. a handful of like internationally touring uh, choral. What's, what's the largest group in terms of members do you think that's touring in terms of in terms of singers i mean is there is there a 30 person group touring i mean the the, the small boy choir like the vienna boys choir okay those are the bigger ones but if you're talking like adult professional they're like a legacy group though i feel like it's gone forever and ever i'm not really sure the answer to that well it's just a ballpark like a wild guess like i don't even know off the top of my how many voices is chanticleer i've seen them it's It's 18 or 20 yeah okay so that's that's getting into the don't quote me (laughs) approaching the sweet spot (laughs) yeah of of the number of voices yeah but you're right logistics are tough right you gotta get right but this is my point that which is a liability becomes an asset because you know okay sure the uh, LA was it LA Phil has a yeah. hundred and ten yeah exactly million dollar budget yeah. versus five yeah exactly well it, it's there are instruments and more stuff to cape around like right. the choir what really do you have to you schlep around you need yourself you might need some music stands maybe maybe not you might need some music a box of music yeah. to, just in case if you don't have it memorized just to have it you always yeah. take it just in case got to rehearse this piece sure so the basses or the alto let's let's beat on the alto. The al- well, it can't be the altos. The altos have always got it nailed. The, the sopranos are, doing it. are screwing <laughs> up <laughs> uh, measure 19. Uh-huh. For the, well, let's fix this. Get right? it right, sopranos. Get it right. So we have the music along with us. And then other than that, it's just people in their clothes. Yeah. Hop on a bus. Yeah. We, choir, we toured every year for yeah. a couple of weeks, and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then that's the secret about choir that I think I want people to understand. I've never had so much fun in my life. Yeah. I don't know. I can't really explain it. You've also got the words, Joe. You know, you, yeah. you, you go to a symphony and it's wonderful, but and it's notes and those notes are certainly capable right. of expressing a few things. But man, to have the additional layer of right. text with which to context. communicate to it, text and context, you get the audience so much more involved that way. And that's, I think, the great potential of choral music that we've really only begun to scratch the surface of in the past, you know. 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So real quick, before we get to this thing, we're running just yeah. a little you know, short on time. I want sure. to get you on out of here. We're both very busy people. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the future plans? I mean, you're three concerts in. You're a couple years in tops yeah. to this thing. You know, it's, it's, it's still growing. Uh-huh. You know, you're getting people showing up to concerts. You've got all your web stuff, all ducks in a row. Um, you know, we've been hearing this great music. Obviously, the music is there, and it's bona fide. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the kind of situation... I don't know. I don't tip my hat too much, but like when you imagine this, is this something you would hope to be a touring ensemble? Is this something that you would like internationally touring ensemble? Is this like, how big do you want to be? I mean, big, I I just want, I just want people to hear good choral music, you know? So yeah, if we, I'm sorry for interrupting. And when I say that, it's a delicate thing in music. I understand because like, you know, you would have asked Taylor Swift. I remember an interview. She said like, she wanted to be the biggest thing in pop in in music. She did it. And that was her (laughs) thing. And I'll be damned if she didn't do it. Yeah. Right. And it, but it's okay to admit that. Like if you want to be a top tier internationally touring organization, if that's the goal, 
say it. It absolutely is. Yeah, we would love to be touring, and we would love to be, you know, recording and be known, and you know, we'd love to be the choir that composers know that they can come to if they've got some works that they want to. Uh, you know, get workshopped or, or figure right. things out about. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of questions about how our organization is going to grow over the next few right. years. I mean, my brain is always working and putting concerts together. If we stick at two concerts a year, I've got concerts planned out all the way through 2019, which probably means we should have more than a couple a year. But yeah, for the time being, it's just going to be continuing to be, you know, this experimental choral group. So yeah. in late 2016, I've commissioned uh, composer Jeffrey Bernstein. He's writing us a one-act choral ballet, and we're going to have a small dance ensemble, and oh, the, the choir provides... Multimedia. A, exactly, yeah. <laughs> choir providing the... Because, you you know, ballet is normally accompanied by orchestra. Right, right, right. Why not? Why not by a choir? Yeah. Um, you know, a recently composed interesting oratorio we're, pro- we're going to be doing in the next couple of years, too, by a composer friend of mine. Our, our concert in March that... And the reason we don't have a date for it yet, you had mentioned this earlier, is because this is going to be a warehouse concert. We're looking in the arts district. We're Very looking cool. We're looking for, you know, a big old, a big old empty space to just fill with choral music. Yeah. Um, so, and that's the lab part of it, right? Just trying a lot of different things, uh, non-traditional venues, non-traditional music, questioning what is a concert, what is a choral experience, why do people come out to hear music, what are they, what what brings people across town on a Saturday yeah. night, you know? This is what we're exploring right now. So in that's, fi- yeah. In, in, in finding new audiences through this, mm-hmm. you know, because that's the thing. I mean, I... Growing up, I mean, it took me uh, myself hearing something like Whitaker and seeing. Oh, let's talk just a real quick. Let's real quick before we get to this last piece. Sure. He did that interesting. What's the virtual the virtual choir? choir. Talk That's about right. that for a second. Yeah. This is fascinating because a lot of people anywhere can participate in this. Right. So the virtual choir was his idea. He took one of his pieces and he um, basically conducted it on a video uh, silently thinking of the piece as he went. And then he posted this video and he said, okay, uh, here's the sheet music to this piece. Everybody, Which you can download. Yeah, you can download your part and you can download a little practice track to, to learn everything. He's like, sing your part, record a YouTube video of you singing your part while you're watching me conduct and send it in. And so they got thousands of submissions of everybody singing their part. Did you submit a part? From around the world. I didn't. I think this was... I thought about it. I saw it and I almost did it. The very first one was when I was still, you know, learning how to sing. So I was a little scared. But no, I haven't I haven't done any of them. Um, and then, I mean, you can guess the rest of the story. They they, they pick the best 250 or whatever mm-hmm. of them. And it's really cool. If, if, if anybody hasn't seen it, they should go, you know, look at YouTube, yeah. Eric Whitaker Virtual Choir, because they do a video thing, too, of him conducting what looks like, you know... A giant newsroom of like 300 screens all right there of everybody singing it's kind of like an apple wet dream kind (laughs) of thing because it's like 200 (laughs) screens in front of him and he's he's in a by himself just like you said and it's such a and i guess that's the reason i wanted to bring that back around from the first thing is to tie it into what you are doing as Mm -hmm. a choir uh of because when you even when you say the word choir right just I still see like kids in robes and old ladies in robes. Even right. I, the LA Choral Lab director, you say choir, and I think old ladies right. in a church choir. And to the, exactly my point. And to the general populace, it's what they were forced to do in yes. sixth grade or yeah. what they had to do in church, right? And maybe they loved it or maybe they didn't. The ones that really loved it skipped their hometown and came to LA or New York or Probably. wherever or yeah. are now directors, choral directors, and professional singers, to a large extent at least. But that's what you think of. And I love the fact that your group specifically and other groups as well are changing this perception of what that can be and what that will be 
in the future. Because sure, just like every other art form, you've got the things that it's always been. You've got the Renaissance music, and you've got the spiritual music, and you've got... Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole body of classical romantic, period. classical romantic piece, Co- classical classical music. era, yeah. the Baroque yeah. era. All these, all, those, all yeah. these different the things are there, yeah. and it's all part of the tradition. Um, but there are ways to smash that apart and reassemble it in a new way. And I guess we live in a mashup world. That's right. That's like the new thing. Everything is, in some regards, the new stuff's already been done. Right, they've written all the people who are really, you know, uh, Bukowski about this or whatever. The the great pieces have been written. The great shows are being done. Hollywood reflects the fact that everything's a sequel of a sequel of a sequel of a franchise of a sequel. But you don't have to go negative about that. I don't think you do. You can take those pieces, reassemble them, and That's make right. them new, which is what artists have done all the way along. It's, it's what every artist has always done, even in periods where we think, oh, that was an explosion of new ideas. They were still reassembling. Same twelve notes. Yeah, same twelve notes. They were still reassembling and using the influences that led them to the moment in which they were writing. Yeah, fantastic. Set up this last piece for me. Sure. We've been kind of building to this particular yeah. piece. This is very unique. Oh, this piece. This was the centerpiece, I would say, of our of our of our concert. So this piece is called "Beneath the Wave," and it's by uh, local composer Luke Flynn. Um, his last name is F L Y N N. LukeFlynnCompositions.com, and this is a piece that uses four Japanese haikus um, in the original Japanese. And uh, he wrote this piece as a reflection on the tsunami tragedy of 2011. And the three big climaxes of the piece he, he sees as, you know, these, these disasters, both natural and uh, man-made, that occur. Uh, earthquake, uh, the Fukushima reactor meltdown, and then, of course, the tsunami. And you'll, you'll hear those climaxes in the piece. Um, the soloist on this is Berica May. Um, and yeah, I think that's a good intro for this piece. Yeah, it, it kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I, I'm glad you guys tackled this piece. Yeah. It's wonderful to hear, and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. So this is L.A. Choral Lab, Beneath the Wave, composer Luke Flynn on Independence Day.
My name is Joe Armstrong. You're listening to Independence Day. Man, you got a cigarette after that? I know, right? It's like, it's like a sex. I'm not even a smoker, but it's like that traditional <sighs> sexual experience. Yeah. Good Lord. That's amazing. Yeah, that's something. Good work. It? Thank you. Thank you guys you. are fantastic. I, I, I highly encourage people to go check out LA Coral Lab. You can learn about them. They've got a concert coming up in March. We don't know exactly where because they're looking for a non-traditional space in which to do this. And if you happen to know of a non-traditional space where you might up. want to have an awesome <laughs> kick-ass choir, come do some, break some new choral ground and, and make it a cool thing, uh, drop me a line. Uh, LA Coral Lab or drop Michael a line. Michael Alfera is his name. Mm. Conductor, artistic director of the LA Coral Lab. So Michael, thank you. Thank you. So much. It's been it was great. fantastic. Fantastic to get to know you. Fantastic to hear the music. Fantastic to hear what you're doing. And I, I wish you the best of luck in Thank everything you. that you're doing. Please stay in touch. Let me I know will. where yeah. you guys are playing. I'll do my best to make sure people know about it. Thank you. Because um, it's just it's it's a thing that I think more people would love if they knew about it. Especially given the new ground and the new ways that you're breaking that new ground. Yeah. It's very, very cool. Thank so uh, go see LA Coral Lab. They're playing somewhere in March. I'll make sure you guys know where that is uh, and when it's happening as well. Uh, drop by lacoralab.org, et cetera, to learn everything you know about them. And, uh, man, keep making beautiful music. Thank you, Joe. Fantastic. So thank you to Michael Alfara and the L.A. Coral Lab. Also to the Independence Day staff, Valentino Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The True Blue, Tony Tonelok Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Be sure to check them out. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. As always, if you do one thing today, please be good to one another.